0: You'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, there's a pew Bible in front of you. You can find it on page 1165. Pastor Bruce will be focusing the the sermon mostly on verses 10 and 11 today, but we're going to read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 to set the context for what we're going to see today. So follow along as I read Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's life. We thank you for the way you used him. In, uh, in, in authoring uh, much of the New Testament and uh, in working through his life, and pray that we would just learn uh, about his life, how it's uh, applicable to our own life, and to, be, uh, to not waste our life, but to find our, our hope and our satisfaction uh, in everything in life in you. And be with Pastor Bruce as he brings the message this morning. Thank you for his preparation this week, and, uh, and just bless him as he, as, as he speaks. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: So let me begin with a question. In fact, two questions that really ask the same thing. And that question is this. What do you want? What do you want? Do you want to waste your life? Or do you want to make your life count for the glory of God? By and large, most people don't want to waste their lives. In fact, most people don't graduate from high school with a goal of just wasting their lives. I haven't met too many of those people. Most people really do want to make their lives count for something. The problem is this, though. Most people don't have a clue what that means in light of eternity. They don't know what it means to make their life count. For God's glory. So most people go through life doing the best they can with the hope that they are making their life count for something. Others go through life just striving to achieve and to acquire as much as they can, thinking that that is the essence of making your life count. Still others go through life just hoping to do enough so that they... get to the end of their life, they can kind of look back on it and say, well, I don't think I wasted it. I hope I made it count for something. Before Paul's life was radically changed, radically transformed by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul wanted to make his life count for something as well. As an Israelite by birth, he This meant being the the best Jew that he could be. This meant striving to obey the Mosaic law. This meant striving to earn God's acceptance through the good deeds of his life, through living a moral lifestyle. And as a Pharisee, nobody had more zeal, more passion to live out the religion than Paul did. I mean, Paul was on a mission to make his life count in the only way that he knew how. And that was through self-righteousness. And nobody could boast more than Paul when it came to this self-righteousness. But then Paul encountered Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and his world was turned upside down. That day, Paul came to the end of himself. He came to the end of his own self-righteousness, which could never make him acceptable before God. And he received by faith the righteousness of Christ, which is the only way any one of us here is made right with God. Looking back over his life, Paul now says, To us here in Philippians chapter 3, and in his own testimony, his own words reflecting back, he says in verses 7 through 8, but whatever gain I had, and let me tell you, he had a lot of gain. He says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so now, having counted loss, the many treasures of this wasted life, in order to gain Christ as his only treasure, what do you think Paul wants now? Now? What's his passion in life? Paul still wants to make his life count. Except now, he wants to make it count not for his sake, but for Christ's sake. Not for his own glory, but for God's glory. And Paul now tells us in these next verses here, he tells us what he wants to do with his life. He tells us what his all-consuming passion is in his life in verses 10 through 11. This is our text that we're going to focus on. Two simple verses, but powerful. It's the all-consuming passion of Paul in making his life count. He says that I may know him. Know who? Know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so here we see the climax of Paul's personal testimony. And here's the, all, his all-consuming passion is this. The all-consuming passion of the life that counts for God's glory is simply to live a Christ-centered life. That's what Paul's passion was. His life was Christ-focused and Christ-centered. He wanted to now live a christ Centered life because for paul listen to me jesus was not just his ticket to heaven jesus is now his only treasure on earth what paul had tasted so far of god's grace and righteousness has only whetted his appetite for more of jesus it's as if Paul has eaten baloney all of his life, but now he's tasted barbecue and he wants to feast on burnt ends and ribs. Having tasted, having tasted in his own words, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, that salvation, Paul is eager to know him More and to know the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In other words, what we see from the testimony of Paul here is that his all consuming passion is to live this Christ centered life. For that is the only pathway, the only road in which you can make your life count for God's glory. There is no other way to make your life count. It is this way in no other way to make your life count. Paul's passion is fully focused on Christ. His relationship with Christ has totally eclipsed Everything else in his life. Paul is making a contrast here between his former life in Judaism and his present life now in Christ. Self-righteousness leads to a self-centered life. And Paul knew all about that. Listen to it again. Self-righteousness leads to a self-centered life and ultimately leads you down the road to wasting your life. But Christ's righteousness leads to a Christ-centered life. And ultimately, that leads you down the road to making your life count for the glory of God. That's what Paul is sharing with us here. That's what he wants us to embrace. It's this mindset, this attitude, this idea. So what does then living a Christ-centered life look like? Well, the all-consuming passion of a Christ-centered life, number one, we see from Paul's own words, it wants to know the person of Christ. It simply wants to know the person of Christ. In verse 8, Paul mentioned the personal knowledge of Jesus Christ that comes at salvation. But here in verse 10, the cry of his heart is that I may know him. This tells us that the initial saving knowledge of Christ is merely the launching pad of Paul's lifelong passion to know Christ more and more and more. To know Christ. Listen, that means far more than just an intellectual knowledge. Far more than just a head knowledge. It means to know him intimately, to know him passionately personally you see looking back over paul's own testimony here paul knew he knew in his mind he knew greco-roman culture paul knew several languages he could speak them he knew the old testament frontwards and backwards in fact he knew the old testament so well he could debate with other rabbis Paul knew secular philosophy so that he could stand on Mars Hill in Athens and quote even their authors. Paul knew a lot of stuff. But in his mind now, nothing could compare with knowing Jesus Christ. Think about it. It has probably been somewhere around 30 years since his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus where he first came to know Christ in saving faith as his Savior. And yet Paul, 30 years later, is still telling us what? I want to know him more. I just want to know him more. Here's the guy who's walked with the Lord for 30 years, and yet he never came to the place in his life where he said, yeah, you know, 30 years is enough. I think I've had enough of knowing Christ Jesus. I, you know, I don't want to go overboard with it with knowing him. So I think I'll just back off a little bit. You don't find that in his testimony here. Rather, Paul says, listen, I want to know him more and more. Knowing Christ was the overarching ambition of Paul's Life. It's his inner drive. And that's what was pursuing an ever-deepening, ever-widening personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. Knowing Christ is what energized Paul's devotion to Christ. It's what energized his quest to take the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth. Paul's intense longing to know Christ was born out of his love for Christ. It's just like in a good marriage. A husband longs to know his wife more than what he knew her on the day that he said, I do to her. Why? Because he loves her. He wants to know her more and more intimately, personally, in a greater and deeper way. And it's the same thing here with Paul. Paul did not adopt an attitude that simply says, I've derived spiritually, I don't need to pursue knowing Christ anymore. He never got bored with knowing Christ. Because of his love for Jesus, he wants to know him more deeply. Is there a better example for us than this? In fact, we'll see in in the last message that later on, Paul will say in verse 17, he says, Follow me in my example. Join me in my example of this. And so as we observe Paul's life, we see an all-consuming passion to know Christ. I love what one author, his name by the name of J.I. Packer, he put it so well when he said, and I quote, Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. So what is the main business in your life? See, most people, especially here in America, we think the main business is to make money. We think that's our main reason we are alive. It's why I get up tomorrow morning to go to work. That's my main business, is to make money. Wrong. You see, is your main business simply to achieve more and acquire more. Or is your main business in life, is your all-consuming passion to know Christ more? Everything in life flows from this fountain, knowing Christ. This is why the very first purpose of our church is what? Know Christ, and then grow in Christ. Then show Christ. And then go out with Christ. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. This is the first step in making your life count for the glory of God. Knowing Christ, yes, it begins at your salvation, at conversion. But it doesn't stop there. It continues for the rest of your life. And so even when we gather here on Sunday mornings, like we're doing right now, one of our goals is to know Christ more in worship. Through our discovery hour, through our uh, grow groups, is to know Christ more. Paul's passion to know Christ, let me tell you, it sets the example for us to follow. And so let me challenge you, make this your prayer. It could be as simple as, Lord man, I want to know you more, to really know you. And you're like, man, I don't know if I can pray that. I don't know that I'm ready to pray that. I don't know if I'm even there to pray that. And If that's the case, if you're not ready to pray that prayer, then start with this prayer. Lord, just give me a desire to know you more. Because right now, my desires are being choked out by the things of this world. Right now, my desires are not really to know you because they are choked out by everything else. And so, Lord, maybe the starting place for you is, Lord, just help me to flush out this desire. Give me, Lord, by the spirit that dwells within me, a new desire to know you, Lord, more and more. Maybe that's the place where you need to start here. In all honesty, that's probably where... Many of us need to start. So, the all-consuming passion of a Christ-centered life is to know the person of Jesus Christ. Second, the Christ-centered life wants to experience now the power of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul says he not only wants to know Christ, but he wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection. The power of Christ's resurrection is we are talking about paul's talking about is god's power His life-giving power that he deployed in raising Christ from the dead. It's the power that God uses to bring about and sustain the new life that we receive from Christ at salvation. In fact, going back in his letters, Paul describes this resurrection power in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 through 20 in this way. He says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see, Paul came to know this resurrection power when he was struck down by a blinding light on the road to Damascus. And I realize, even though not all conversions to Christ are quite as dramatic as Paul's was, including my own, Listen to me. Nonetheless, all conversions to Christ do require the same mighty power of the risen Lord. Why? Because they all require God to raise the sinner from spiritual death to spiritual life. Paul tells us that our spiritual state before salvation is simply we are dead in our sins. Notice his own words here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is none other than Satan, the spirit that is now a work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, what is Paul saying here about us before Christ? We are stone cold dead spiritually. That is our spiritual state. But then comes the miracle of God's resurrection power here in verses 4 through 6 where Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and now raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, it takes nothing less than God's resurrection power to save us and to make us alive together with Christ. And so don't ever shortchange the miracle of your salvation. It is only by the miracle of God's resurrection power that you are born again by faith in Jesus Christ. It is God's gift to every believer in Christ. In fact, Paul put it this way in Romans 8:11, "If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies." through his spirit who now dwells in you in other words the same power that resurrected jesus christ from the dead is the power that gives us new life in christ it's the same power that gave new life to paul as well it's the same power folks Paul wanted to experience this same resurrection power now, not just a salvation. He wants to experience it daily in his walk with the Lord. Justified by Christ's resurrection power. In other words, he wants to be sanctified, set apart by that same power. This is what one author called living life plugged in. That means we will never have resurrection power on our own. We cannot manufacture this power. We cannot even turn it up or even turn it on. It isn't generated by us. It's God's power given to us by God and demonstrated through us by the Holy Spirit. And Paul's passion now is to live by this power. Let me illustrate it this way. Like most of you... At our house, we have garage door openers on our garage doors to make life a little more convenient. Let's just be honest. Let's call it what it is, right? And oh, does it make life convenient, especially like yesterday when you have a downpour of rain and you pull up to your driveway and you just hit that remote button in your visor and all of a sudden your garage door pops open, you can drive right in, maybe your garage is too full packed full of stuff you can't drive in but you get out of your car and you run in now you don't have to manually lift up your garage door it's a mighty convenient thing that we let's be honest we take for granted it's wonderful but there are times that power is nice but there are times when the remote in my car doesn't work Hit it several times. Why isn't this working? Why isn't the garage door going up? I'm hitting this. So like all of you, what do I continue to do? Hit the button more. Right? Because if it doesn't work the first time, well, it will work several more times after that. That's, you know, logical thinking. So you continue to do that to no avail. There are times to no avail does that work. So I have to get out of my car, go in the house a different way, go down to the garage and find out what is going on. And inevitably, this happened frequently when my boys were smaller. Thankfully, this doesn't happen too much now. I'd go down to the garage, and I would find there one of their toys, ball, skateboard, ripstick, you name it, a bicycle, would not be put away properly. And where do I find it? Yeah, right there by the entrance of the garage, you know you have those safety things at the bottom. I hate those things. They're irritating. I have cursed at them many times. I have threatened my wife. I'm taking them off. I don't like them. Because anything that is sitting behind, block, is sitting between them is blocking the infrared thing that goes back and forth, and it, your remote won't work. It's as if my remote thinks that the garage door opener is not plugged in. It's irritating. Yes, I just confessed to you. Oh, So here's the analogy. Here's the point when it comes to the power of Christ. It's easy to think something is wrong, though, with God's power when my life doesn't look the way it ought to look. Or when my life isn't going the way I want it to go. It's not working the way I want it to work. And we think all of a sudden, well, something's wrong with God's power. No, that's not the problem. The problem isn't God's power. The problem is something is blocking my access to the power of Christ. Something is standing in the way of God's power, working in me and through me to make my life like it should. That's something. Oftentimes, perhaps, if your life is like mine, it's the callousness in my own heart. Perhaps it's disobedience, perhaps it's selfishness, you name it. Jerry Bridges, one author, put it like this. It is time for us Christians to face up to our responsibility for holy living. Too often we say that we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we are not defeated, we are simply just disobedient, he says. It might be better if, stop, if we stopped using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress. Rather, we should use the terms disobedience and obedience. And what I have found in my life, and perhaps you have found the same thing, so many times the reason why I don't have the resurrection power working in me and through me is not because God's power doesn't work. It's simply because I'm not obeying what I know I need to obey. I just need to get real with it, like you. Resurrection power means living in light of the fact that God has given us the power to live out his commands, the power to obey his word, the power to make our lives count for his glory. In fact, you know what's interesting, the Greek word here for power, it comes from the same word which we get our words dynamite, dynamo, dynamic. And you go through the course of the Bible, and it says the gospel is the power of God. Creation bears witness to God's power. The message of the cross is the power of God. The Holy Spirit is the power of God that indwells us and enables us. And now Paul wants to experience this power in his daily life so that we might make our lives count for his glory. Like Paul. What do you long for? Do you long to know Christ? And do you long to know the power of his resurrection? Listen, it is a desire that God is pleased to fulfill. And so pray each day, Lord, I want to know you and I want to experience the power of your resurrection. It's a simple prayer, but a powerful prayer. So the all-consuming passion of a Christ-centered life wants to know Christ and the power of His resurrection in order to make His life count for God's glory. But here's where. It's at this spot right here. This is where most Christians bail out on living a Christ-centered life. Notice at number three. That's because a Christ-centered life wants to share the sufferings of Christ. Christ. Again, let's be real, let's be honest. Most Christians would prefer to skip this aspect of the Christ-centered life. We could all raise our hand to that, right? When we hear Paul saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, man, we're thinking, go Paul, I'm with you, man. I'm following right behind you. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection too, Paul. But when he says, I also want to share the sufferings of Christ, that's when we say, I'm out. Good luck with that, Paul. I'm out of here. Isn't there an option to make your life count without the suffering part? I'll sign up for that option. But Paul knows that a powerful relationship with Christ, listen to me, also includes a painful fellowship with Christ. When he says that I may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. You see, the spiritual reality is this. Suffering is the calling of every believer. And this is a truth that Paul has referenced frequently already. Luke tells us that he and Paul returned to the churches of Asia Minor after one missionary journey, and he says in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, he says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul told the Thessalonian church in First Thessalonians 3, 3 through 4, he said, for you yourself know that we are destined for this. Destined for what? He goes on, he says, for when you, we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, earlier, Paul had told the Philippian church here in the book of Philippians chapter one, verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, why would Paul say that? I mean, that, is, that just suffer, for Christ's sake, that goes so against our mindset. Even our Christian mindset. And so, for just a brief moment here, let's think about suffering in the context of just Philippians chapter 3. Paul has already made it clear that he wrote the word loss over everything. Even the good things in his life, this world has to offer. He counted the treasures of this world as loss in order to gain the treasure of Jesus Christ. So what is suffering? Now, in the context of Philippians chapter 3, David Platt, preaching on this same passage, he mentions this. He writes, suffering is mainly the taking away of things that this world has to offer us good things and bad things in other words we could put it this way in the context of loss and gain loss and gain suffering now is the taking away of our job that brings suffering does it not suffering is the taking away of some of our finances That certainly brings suffering. Suffering is the taking away of perhaps even our home. That definitely brings suffering. If we were to lose our spouse, if you were to lose one of your children, that brings tremendous suffering. If we were to lose our health, our strength, our reputation, our esteem among our peers, that too brings suffering. No doubt, the loss of these things and many other things brings suffering. And the loss of some of those things brings real suffering, even tremendously painful suffering. However, as David Platt goes on to write, he says, if we have written loss over these things, then when God calls us to forfeit some of those things, it's not actually a loss because we've already Lost them. It's a gain because losing these things, no matter how precious they are, and because of the very real pain that goes with losing these things, it drives you deeper into the gain that you have in Christ. That is, you depend more on Christ when you lose all of these things you've already. Counted as lost. That's when you need Christ more. That's when you treasure Christ more, is in suffering. And yes, this kind of thinking, this kind of living flies in the face of our culture. We live in a society where everything is centered on minimizing suffering and maximizing my comfort. And if we buy into that goal over God's goal for our lives, then we will reap two consequences. We will never come to the point in our lives where we truly treasure Christ above everything that this world has to offer. Why? Because the treasures of this world will simply choke out the treasures of Christ. And then two, the second cons, Consequence, we will never live a life that truly counts for the glory of God. However, however, if Paul's passion to live a Christ-centered life here begins to take root in our hearts, then we can be confident that our lives really are counting for God's glory. As Christians, we should have a a radically different view of suffering than those without Christ. Why? Because of the hope that we have in Christ. Listen, we know as Christ followers, we know from the Word of God that a day is coming when suffering will be what? No more. Sin will be eradicated in the new heavens and new earth. We know that even in suffering, God loves us. We know that God is near to us, and He will never leave us nor forsake us. But Paul says something even more here. He notice he does does not say that he wants to suffer. Please make that distinction. He doesn't want to suffer just for the sake of suffering. I mean, Paul's not a masochist. He's not crazy. Nobody wants to suffer just for the sake of suffering. You see, Paul wants to suffer because of where it takes him in his life. Because of the end result of it. What it does to him and through him. In other words, Paul says this, I do want to share in my Lord's suffering in order to be like him. And so Paul is saying to us, How do you then live if you've been saved by grace? He says, you look suffering square in the eye and you say, Lord, don't waste one drop of my suffering. Make this count in making me like Jesus. You say, how's that possible? That's awful hard. You bet it is. I mean, again, let's just be real here. Because it's one thing to look suffering in the eye and say, Lord... Don't waste one drop of my suffering. And it's quite another to actually then live through suffering. And by the way, I don't pretend to know what Paul's fully talking about here. Because I, to be honest, I have not yet lived a life of suffering. I've suffered a little bit here and there, but not to the extent which I think God is going to take the church through here in the next few years. And are we ready to go through suffering like Paul. You say, how is that possible? Notice in your notes. What can steal our resolve to face and embrace the sufferings of Christ when our natural instinct is to pull away from what brings pain? Well, don't miss the order of Paul's words here. Notice this. The power of Christ's resurrection precedes the sharing of Christ's sufferings. This is critical because the only way that we can handle sharing of Christ's sufferings is by walking in the power of Christ's resurrection. In other words, being plugged in and dependent upon Christ's power is what allows you, is what gives you the power, is what gives you the grace to press on in Christ's sufferings. What God told Paul Listen, it is true for us as well in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where he said, but he said to me, and this in the context is Paul was going through some suffering. In fact, he says, man, I got this thorn in the flesh, and God, I want you to take it away. In fact, three times Paul prays, Lord, please take this away. I'm tired of this. I can't go on anymore. I can't handle the suffering that you've allowed to come into my life. Lord, please take this away. And here's Paul's, Jesus answered to Paul where he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And so when the pain of suffering becomes most intense in your life, the Christ who loves us draws us closer to us through his ever-present spirit. And so it's with Christ's resurrection power that we face, that we even embrace the sufferings of Christ. Back in 2007, some of you may remember this in the news the shooting at Virginia Tech, the massacre, really. Virginia Tech on the campus there. That that shooting in, back in 2007 of Virginia Tech College left 32 people dead and 17 wounded. One of those killed that day was a girl named Lauren McCain, and she wrote in her diary a few days before the massacre this prayer, and I quote it: "Lord." Show me your purpose for me at Tech and on this earth. But if you choose not to, I will still praise you and walk where you lead. Not because I am selfless or holy or determined to sacrifice myself to do what is right, but because you are the delight of my heart, and I cannot live without you. A few days later, she was killed. But she's in the presence of her Lord. She gained Christ. Christ was her treasure. Christ was her passion. For Christ impacted many people through her life. In fact, her mother goes on after this. And they interviewed her. And her mother testifies and says this. And I quote her words. We mourn Lauren, but know she is with Jesus. She has lost nothing compared to what she has gained. And in our mourning, he, that is God, still comforts us. The Christ-centered life wants to know Christ, wants to experience the power of Christ, and yes, even wants to share in the sufferings of Christ. And then Paul says he desires one last thing that makes it all worthwhile. Number four, wants to attain the resurrection of Christ. Look what Paul says in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, at first glance, that may seem like Paul is uncertain about his resurrection, but that's not the case at all. Paul is not expressing uncertainty on his future in heaven. Paul is simply acknowledging that he doesn't know the route by which God will bring him to the finish line. You see, the resurrection in Paul's mind of his life was certain. He was confident in that. But Paul is uncertain about the timing of it, even the circumstances of this experience. In other words, would Paul die and then rise from the dead? Or would he receive a transformed resurrection body without passing through death? In Paul's mind, either way... Somehow, he will, quote, attain the resurrection from the dead. And so, think of it this way. Paul's basically saying something like this. Somehow, Lord, I don't know how, I don't know the details or the timing, but eventually my suffering will take me to the resurrection from the dead. And I'm looking forward to that glorious day, Lord. Because that means I'll be face-to-face in the presence of Jesus Christ, the one I've lived to know More and more and more. So what did Paul know? What Paul did know for certain is that he would experience a resurrection from the dead. And we too We should long for this glorious end, the final resurrection, when we will see Christ face to face, when we will be in his presence. In fact, this is the hope that Paul reminds us of later on, a few verses later in this very chapter, when he says in verses 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who notice what he will do he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to him in other words here's what paul's saying he said listen we have a taste of this glory now you're like i we do when did i taste that <laughs> you tasted at the moment of your salvation You tasted that resurrection power when you were made spiritually alive in Christ, when you were raised up spiritually from the dead. You already tasted that power. And now Paul says, but we have not experienced the fullness of that yet. It's like last year when the Chiefs, in that wonderful, wonderful AFC championship game, and, man, we're down at halftime. We think, man, I don't know. And then we come back. Man, Patrick Mahomes led us. It was glorious. And then we go to overtime. Well, before overtime, we think, we think for that split second, three seconds, in fact, we thought we won. Remember remember that? We, we, we could just taste the Super Bowl. How many stood up from their seats? Yeah, we're in the Super Bowl. And then you see the yellow flag. If not for an offside call on the defense, we intercepted Tom Brady, and we're in the Super Bowl. We tasted it. And so what do we want now? We can't wait. Some of you are watching your watches. You're like, Bruce, you got five minutes left because they play at 12 o'clock, and I already tasted it. I want to see. I want to ride the journey with them to the Super Bowl this year. I want more of it. And that's what Paul's saying here. Listen, we are still waiting for our resurrected bodies, our new homes in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so let this hope encourage you in your sufferings. Let this hope help you to put the treasures of this world into a proper perspective. And most of all, let this hope motivate you to make your life count for the glory of God. Listen, Paul had tasted the glory of Christ on the Damascus Road. And he wanted to know Christ more. He never got over that encounter with Christ. And like David, Paul is urging us in Psalm 34, 8, to taste and see that the Lord is good. So here's a question to end on. What are you hungry for? Spiritually speaking, what are you hungry for? Are you hungry to know Christ more? What dampens your hunger for Christ? What robs your affections for Christ? Paul is showing us by the example of his own life here that the all-consuming passion of his life is to live a Christ-centered life. Is that your passion? Here's my challenge to us, and it's a prayer right there in your notes at the bottom, is to make Paul's passion your prayer. And so as we come to our response time this morning, we're going to bow our heads. The instrumentals are going to come. They're going to play through just a course. And my challenge to you is simply pray this prayer. Make this prayer the desire of your heart. And pray it silently. If you need to just even whisper it, take this prayer home and pray it this week. And so with our heads bowed, let's pray. Let's have the instrumentalists come. And let's respond in praying this prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the testimony of Paul's passion to know you more. Forgive us for thinking that Jesus is just a ticket to heaven when he should be our treasure on earth. Lord, we ask that by your grace that Jesus would be our greatest treasure and that the desire to know him more would become our own, our all-consuming passion. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.